0: Books are such a wealth of information. It's why I love to invite authors onto the podcast to share how they have taken a wide, broad-ranging subject and distilled it into something that we can comprehend. Judith Schwartz has done that with regenerative agriculture, the water cycles, and has done an amazing job showing the importance of why we should all support those systems. Welcome to the Sewing Prosperity Podcast with host... Logan Duvall. This father of four is an Arkansas successful small business owner whose world was turned upside down with the cancer diagnosis of his then five-year-old son. As Napoleon Hill famously stated, every adversity, every failure, every heartbreak carries with it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Come and join us on our journey to create a blue zone community with a focus on a holistic approach to anti-cancer, regenerative farming, and strengthening local economies. Hi, Judith. Uh, so, so happy to have you on. I read your first book years ago. Oh, well, my first book of, of yours, The Cow Saved the Planet, years ago and didn't realize how much more you've came out. But Uh, We have interviewed and we work with like Will Harris, um, Gabe Brown, a lot of the regenerative agriculture proponents, you know, Joel Salatin, and you, your work has been a mainstay, I think, kind of across the entire uh, world of regenerative agriculture. So if you, if you will, tell us how in the world did you as a journalist get into writing about agriculture?
1: Gosh, you know, I got to say, so um, that book came out, 10 years ago, which completely blows my mind. And when I think about it, just how did I know to follow that line of inquiry that I followed? Um, I was thinking about this uh, because last week um, there was an event, a kind of field day devoted to a um, contraption, okay, it's called the Rip Sower, which builds upon the yeoman plow okay um so um shoot i forget the other name for the yeoman plow anyway um it'll it'll come to me and abe collins who opens is one of the characters that opens the book cow save the planet was doing a demo and it felt just like old days you know there's Abe with the, um, you know, with the shovel and, you know, bringing up the soil, showing us what's in there, showing us where the topsoil ends and the subsoil begins and how different ways we can enhance the level of topsoil. So it was it just had this like like old days feeling. And, you know, that was just so meaningful for me because so, I mean, because this rip addresses compaction, which is a huge, huge problem that is rarely talked about. But I didn't answer your question. You said, you asked, how did you know someone who grew up in the suburbs, lived in cities, end up writing about agriculture? And it came from asking questions. So I live in Bennington, Vermont, which is a rural area. And... As many of you know, as many of you live, rural areas are have been struggling for a long time. And it became really clear to me that, you know, this is really basic, that every local purchase I make matters, which started me asking questions. Well, then, why is that? Where does money go? Why is wealth leaving rural areas? Because we understand that land is wealth, where we go grow food embodies wealth, but why is wealth leaving rural areas and going into the urban centers? Because I also came to see that all my old friends living in cities had a completely different economic reality than everyone that I'm living with in my small town. And like, why is that? So I was asking questions about the disconnect. And I was fortunate that at that time I had editors that when I asked an interesting question, they said, go for it, find the, you know, explore that. And so I got to write about it. So asking questions like, um, is the GDP the best measure of prosperity? Um, Why does nature have a value of zero in our economic model? What is local currency and how can that be a tool to understanding the flow of wealth through, through out of and into and through communities? And how can we keep wealth in local communities? So, so that inquiry led me to Soil.
0: I think that is so fascinating because you hit the nail on the head. Like, so we're in Arkansas, so rural Arkansas has just been decimated. Uh, and agriculture is a big, big cause of that decimation. But uh, the asking questions, that is so beautiful and it resonates so much for me because it, my, my journey to being, you know, on this podcast was my son being diagnosed with cancer. Why? Asking questions about health and then the food and nutrition. But it's, it just kept getting more and more to led me really to soil and the farming methods that we employ. And this kind of, you know, management style, which has led me to uh, be able to visit with incredible minds. And one of those minds is Alan Savory. And I would love to hear your personal experience with, uh, you know, what you've done. At, at spending time with, with Alan, but over over in Zimbabwe. But the management is something that I find fascinating in his approach. And I think sometimes we talk maybe too much about just soil or just this or just the method. Whereas that framework framework has been really eye-opening for me, but I still can't fully grasp it.
1: Wow. I, I will do my best. And I can say that it has been such a gift to be able to spend real time with Alan and his wife in Zimbabwe. Because when you have the opportunity to look at a landscape through the eyes of someone who is so tuned into processes, I mean... You know, okay. So I can say that spending eight days in in Zimbabwe with with him, um, and I also have an added interest and an added lens because my husband Tony grew up in South Africa and wanted to be a game ranger when he grew up. So that that landscape was extremely alive for him, and I've also been able to visit southern Africa many, many times. So it wasn't just completely new. But Alan can, you can walk with Alan and he can say, you know, these birds were here, this is what they do. Over here, a giraffe has walked by within the last day. And and he can say that whether the giraffe was escaping a predator, whether it was seeking water, where it grazed, where it was going to go and why, um just so, you know, we think of grasses and we think of grasses as a kind of unit, you know, like a grass, grass is grass or Forbes or Forbes. But he he will show that how a landscape is shifting in what what kind of grasses are dominating. So shifting from, let's say, fire dependent grasses that de- that depend on bare soil to animal dependent grasses that depend on animal impact to create more biodiversity and therefore to have a healthier, more robust landscape. Um, I just want to mention that the fire dependent grasses, he, you know, I'm actually, I uh, you know, like almost feel it in my hand that he would pick up seeds and explain how the seeds are strut of fire dependent grasses that thrive on bare soil, in other words, that they are exploiting the situation at i don't mean in a judgment way, you know, but that you know when there's bare sure. soil, they come in you know after there's been a fire that they're shaped like a spiral, so they're like a corkscrew that go into the soil, whereas the animal dependent grasses need to be pressed in by animals, maybe need the initial um, nutrients of the animal's waste maybe are, you know, um, in the, the seed bank um, where the water may pool after the animals have pressed in and created a little, um, you know, little crater for the, you know, mini crater for the, you know, moisture to collect.
0: Judith, is that that contrasting management uh, style kind of the big eye opener that uh, Alan had or and that you have seen where you're you're th- saying, you know, cows can literally be this savior of the land versus the villain, uh, depending on this management way. Is that the big contrast? there? Well, what I would say
1: and what, what, you know, this little digression that I've taken you on is getting to is that it has a lot to do With very fine tuned observation. So, to me, the core of holistic management is planning and observation and understanding that when you are planning, you are making what can only be your best guess. And something very profound and simple is that you go into the planning and then the implementation of the planning with the assumption that you are going to be wrong because circumstances are always changing and your best guess can never be perfect. Just the future does not, you know, like sort of roll out the way that we think it will, that never happens. So, something as simple as the plan is written in pencil and not in pen is very meaningful and then after the season you write it in pen so that you have a history and a record of what you've done and how and then you can um gauge that against how the land has responded so the way one practitioner articulated it to me is that doing it this way with the assumption that you're going to have to make adjustments takes the pressure off from always having to be right. And that kind of makes me chuckle when I think of how many people, not just in land management, but in all kinds of situations, get themselves in a knot because they are so invested in being right. And once you take that pressure away, it all all possibilities open up and you can make different decisions in, that help you fulfill the mission, the intent that you had set for yourself in, the, in managing the landscape. And you have lots of choices on the table since you haven't been locked in.
0: Yeah, that that framework of just making decisions is, it's just, it's fascinating. I think it's something that we're so linear in our thinking that we lose fact of exactly what, you know, you just said. What, what was your, what is your favorite experience that you've written about through, through the three just incredible, incredible books that you've got? And I had not realized that Reindeer Chronicles was a new one. So I I had to hurry up before we got this and listen to that book too. And I think it's phenomenal. But what is your favorite experience over a vast, vast time and literal going to these places thing that you've covered?
1: Gosh, I mean, you know, I mentioned spending time with Alan Savory and his wife, and I I just can share that sitting around a fire in the cool of the evening— Hearing stories about the time that a rhino came into his camp and, and when he was taking a bath, and you know he had just had enough time to grab his camera and get a picture of the tusk. You know, I mean, there's there's nothing that replaces that. <laughs> you know, just the stories and and the, the alive feel, experiencing the aliveness of the landscape in Southern Africa with the sounds, the sounds of the birds and all the creatures and the, you know, the, seeing all the elephants and these wonderful, wonderful um, beings, you know, there's nothing that, that, you know, that can catch up to that, but I'll share two others with you. Okay. One is in Water and Plain Sight. I wrote about a rancher named Alejandro Carrillo. And Tony and I spent a week with Alejandro and two of his colleagues, unfortunately, one of them has passed away since. uh, And we saw their landscape and just could, the landscapes of those three ranches and the contrast and the, the, what they were able to do in what is often considered a kind of degraded desert Was amazing. But what makes that one of my favorite experiences in retrospect is because Alejandro has moved so far forward and his voice has become so strong in this movement that I feel, you know, it almost like it's it's like I'm so tickled that we got to see that early on when he wasn't a household name in holistic management. And just one other yeah. thing about that is so I'm not a very patient person. So when I saw how beautiful his land was and how degraded and devoid of life the neighbor's land was and this was, you know, huge, you know, hundreds of thousands of hectares of land that I could see could be so different. I said to Alejandro, don't you just want to go and say to that guy and say, You've got to do something different with that land? Okay, you know, because I'm not a patient person. Alejandro, however, is a patient person. And he said, Don't worry, someday he's going to come to me. And sure enough, I think even several years ago now, that landowner has came to Alejandro and said, I want my land to look like your land. And that landowner is now part of this larger movement of regenerative ranches in the Chihuahuan Desert grasslands that are working with bird conservation organizations to create a biological corridor for endangered migratory grassland birds. Sorry about that.
0: so Judith they're literally taking a, a desert and turning it into a productive grassland.
1: Yeah, I mean it's been kind of um you know it's a desert grassland ecosystem but most of m- most of that land has been degraded and they are making it vibrant and healthy and biodiverse and one of the the birds that have been that bird people have uh, conservationists have been most concerned about is the aplomato falcon and i'm pretty sure that that now that there's a nesting pair on that land that only recently that landowner has chosen to shift i mean the the rapidity of the shifting is incredible. We were um driving around, and like I said, these are huge distances, and a lot of the area there was just mesquite and Alejandro pointed to the fact that our governments spend you know the mex i, I don't know about the Mexican government this wasn't in, in mexico but in um in um you know the u s Billions of dollars are being spent annually to try to eradicate mesquite. And Alejandro said, when, so mesquite thrives on bare soil. It kind of gets a, a you know, a, a toehold, a root hold. And it also then has functions. It create, it." um photosynthesizes, it creates shade, it holds moisture, the, you know, the, the miniature water cycle with the dew. You know, so it, it does provide forage for animals. You know, it's not a high ecological value plant, but it has some ecological value. And he said that when the landscape is healthier and able to hold moisture and other plants can grow, It will just go away. We don't need to eradicate um, mesquite. It will just, you know, fade on its own. And I saw a landscape where a picture where uh, that from Alejandro that that is actually happening. You can see grasses coming up and the mesquite kind of looking sort of grayish. And it's just happening. So, I think that's really powerful when we all get exercised. This is a plant we don't want. We need to get rid of it, you know, and then we bring out the big guns you know and all whenever we put a side on we're killing some you know more than we are wanting to remove so yeah.
0: That's beautiful. I think that's such a really interesting parallel to kind of our philosophy with sowing prosperity. It's that when we do the things right, when we create prosperity, a lot of the things just kind of go away on their own, whereas the war on whatever, it just never works. Um, I mean, we've had history prove that time and time and time again. So that, that is, I I love that. I love that you gave kind of that pick, that word picture of the mesquite for, for what I've been trying to, to say, all right, what is the second one that you were wanting to talk about the experience or or place?
1: Yeah. So one reason that this is, this is still very much with me is that, you know, I'm continuing to do work in this vein. And um, in the Reindeer Chronicles, I share that my view of my role had always been as a journalist if i just if i just explain how nature works and what needs to be done well then once people understand everyone will automatically do the right thing okay and then i kind of hit a wall where oh <laughs> actually these we know what to do but these are I guess you could say people problems, but you know, we're dealing with people's fear of change, people's concern about what their neighbors might think if they make a change, um, you know, desire to keep doing what they've always been doing because their grandfather did it. And, you know, conflicts and old grudges and, you know, all these things that have an impact on how we are re- in, engaging with our landscapes. And so, you know, that was kind of a aha moment for me, like, oh, I guess we have to deal with that stuff too. And then I encountered Jeff Goebel, who has been working in the area of land management through conflict resolution and working with communities to help people address their concerns, their intra and interpersonal concerns. And so in the book, I tell the story of a community in New Mexico that in three days went from suspicion, sabotage and gunfire to committing to rebuild long-standing, often generations-old relationships and restore the land in three days. And, you know, I, I tell the process and and, and and it's about people listening to each other. And I explained that, you know, as I've said, I'm an impatient person. So, you know, we're sitting there having these conversations, sitting in a circle, listening to each other. And while we're, while we're doing this over the three days and three days can feel long when you're in it, you know, and thinking, oh my gosh, this is getting really tedious and, you know, but sitting there, but then when the, Turn happens, you realize I can't believe that happened that quickly. So, anyway, I found that very powerful. I kept in touch with Jeff. I took actually people from reading the Reindeer Chronicles, contacted him. So, we had a group of people that were already interested that learned about it through the book. We had a group of maybe 20 to 25 people. And over the course of almost a year, we did an institute and learned the consensus method. And many people are applying it. I'm applying it in different ways, not directly, but we've just set up a website called do the impossible dot earth, where we're looking to build people's capacity to do this
0: work. I'm- I love that. So based off that, where, where would we in Arkansas, where would we in, you know, the, the, (laughs) the, all the farmland, all the Eastern and Southern Arkansas that's really, really struggling where, how do we apply? How do we apply this, this framework or get involved with like, you know, do the impossible?
1: Talk to your neighbors gather together. I mean, we could provide facilitators, you know, certainly if there's a conflict, I know that there have been conflicts around the spraying of pesticides that affects other people's land. You know, what is it we want? And how can we do this together? And what is an impossible goal? And often you get to the point where Okay, given that it's impossible, we can see, talk about all the reasons why it's impossible to get, you know, past this particular conflict. But once you ask the question, okay, given that it's impossible, if it were possible, what would that look like? Once you come up with one answer, you're already on the path, okay? I can give, I'll give an example from another, how about if I do that? I'm going to give an example that Jeff has shared. Okay. So um, back, I think it was the early 2000s, Jeff was invited to help with a real crisis in the country of Mali in Africa, West Africa. And he did a couple, you know, workshops and again, you know, the slow process of building trust with this community. There were five, there were 12 warring tribes and food insecurity was 85%. Okay. So there was a, a lot of, a lot of conflict, the, the pastoralists and the agriculturalists you know we're fighting over land you know there was a lot of violence it was a really difficult situation so i think it was the second round or the end of the first round that jeff talked to the group of leaders that were selected by the community to be part of the workshop and okay so what what is your goal and everybody said we would like to have greater food security and have greater food pr- you know enhance our food production Said, okay, that's great. Um, why? Why is this impossible? So everyone had a list of reasons. No one gets along. Nobody has money. The rains don't come when they're supposed to come anymore. Um, you know, all all these all these reasons. People are stubborn. You know, uh, all these reasons. And so he said, okay, I understand. That's a lot of challenges. Given that it's impossible, if it were possible to increase food production, what might what might that look like? What might you choose to do? And they all looked at each other. Gee, I don't know. And then someone said, "Well, change our animal management, grow more legumes, have more." Community meetings where we listen to people of different tribes, so we know what concerns other tribes. And they went on in in that vein. Okay, they um, said, you know, maybe um, work to harvest water so that we're not as dependent on the rain. So they came up with a number of ideas. And Jeff said, okay, that sounds really promising. I think there's a lot of potential there. Do you think that, given all that you've said, you could increase food production 10%? They all said, well, gosh, I guess, maybe. He said, how about 20%? Well, maybe if we work really hard and do a better job of listening to other communities and other people. Then he said, how about 50%? I said, "No way." Okay. Then, fifteen months later, was the next workshop, and Jeff, you know, arrives on, you know, with his in his jeep, um, you know, going up to the, you know, the on the dirt road up to the area, and the 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 dirt road was lined with people. They could not wait to tell him that they had increased food production 78% by doing the very things that they had suggested. And they had come up with that suggestions themselves, those suggestions themselves. Of course, those suggestions were also part of some of the teaching that Jeff and his team had done, but it's that pivot given that it's impossible if it were possible, because if we say something's impossible, like, you know, I don't know, honestly, I've never been to Arkansas, but I can imagine people saying, you know, it's impossible because, you know, we've been suffering like this for generations because there's no money because leadership, you know, leadership and the legislature doesn't know what we're dealing with, doesn't understand, you know, I can imagine all those things. But if you, if you stick with that it's impossible. That lets you off the hook. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to listen because you know what the problems are and likely you're right. But if you, if you just kind of take that shift, if it were possible, what might that look like? Then it's amazing the possibilities that are just like you Know beyond your reach that you just haven't reached far enough, you're you just haven't pushed your imagination hard enough, you haven't welcomed those dreams in, you know, generously enough.
0: <laughs> um, it's right there. I love it, I, I love that. I, I that that framework that just mentality shift it's uh it's powerful stuff, it's it is so powerful. Well, Judith, how. How does this play out? Uh, what's that just kind of that positive spin? When, when these things, you've done an amazing job doing in your book. Just briefly, what happens to communities when this, this type of framework is applied and that we refocus on, on this management of, you know, so all the great works that you have laid out?
1: Wow. I mean, in terms of communities going through that, um, I've only really experienced the community in New Mexico. Well, actually, actually, I've experienced a little bit more. And before I forget, remember when we started talking? There was a a plow. I could not remember the name of the plow. It's the Keyline plow. Of course, it just it's came to line. me. So the rip sower is. A few components added on to the key line plow, and the key line plow works on contour to steer the movement of moisture in a way that keeps moisture in the ground. Thank you. I, anyway, I just am glad I could. <laughs> I love it. So, um, I cannot emphasize the importance of people feeling heard and how transformative that is. So a real tiny example, and it's a tiny example because this happened in the space of two hours. So Jeff invited me to be a facilitator for an online workshop that was dealing with the challenge of dust on snow in the Rockies. Okay. In the Southwest. So, you know, I live in Vermont, so I wasn't aware of this scenario, but basically in Colorado and Utah, what they have been dealing with is degraded land. You know, when you have degraded land, you know, in, in the Southwest, in Arizona and parts of Colorado, um, New Mexico, you get a lot of erosion and a lot of dust that gets moved around with, with the wind. Um, and so that is going up, that dust is going into the Rockies and it, you know, people call it pink snow because it then, it, rather than the snow that's reflecting heat, it absor- absorbing heat. And you're getting snow melt a lot earlier, which causes all kinds of challenges. So um, Jeff has, you know, long been in the belief that if we can, we, you know, a large we can, you know, the land managers in the Southwest can, um, you know, halt the degradation, turn that around, heal those landscapes so that there's the the land is covered, the ground is covered rather than, you know, just, um, you know, bare ground with, with, eroding dirt, then that they can turn that, they can ameliorate the situation. So he gathered, I guess a dozen or a few more than a dozen community, community members, a very broad community. There was the state meteorologist of New Mexico, um, scientists in Colorado, um, Native American um, leaders, Native American scientists that are working in, in water management, some other um, tribal people, and people, so you know, it's this whole group of people. And we all listened to each other. And th- it was really powerful because None of these groups, you know, the the farmers, the land, the water management people, the meteorologists, the scientists studying the snow. There usually aren't any ways for those groups to communicate, and people were sharing. You know, I remember a Native American woman was saying she is in such grief because she cannot do ceremonies that depended on the you know the ample snow that she had done as a child she cannot share that with her children um a scientist that also was you know sharing his grief and alarm that his you know what's driven him to do the work he does is a love of the landscape and a love of winter sports that you know, it's almost spiritual for him to be out there and how that has changed. And, um, you know, so every, everybody's sharing what they're, you know, what it all means to them. And, you know, it came to me and I'm an outsider. So what I can do, what I could do was reflect. And I said, you know, I am, I've just been listening to all of you and I am struck by, the shared experience of grief that I have heard. And yet what, the, what that comes from is a profound love of these landscapes and the potential for you all to work together to improve these the situation because we know that we can heal these landscapes. And anyway, it, it was very, very powerful. And, in that conversation, people were talking about how they can work together across these disciplines and across these communities that hadn't been in touch before. This happened in two hours.
0: It's amazing. I love it. Just let's just coming together, just just uh communication and, and togetherness instead of all the divide. I th- think that is that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for joining uh, the podcast and, and spending your time. You have been a blessing. Uh, we're going to absolutely uh, keep pushing your great works. I uh, can't wait to uh, you know, follow up and see what, what else you've got in store as uh, you, you take on uh, making change right there in Vermont.
1: Thank you. Doing my best.
0: <laughs> so I remember being down at uh, Bluffton, Georgia, at Will Harris's place, and then on his counter was a book. How's save the planet. So I really wanted to reach out to Judith Schwartz and figure out if uh, she had a way of relaying the information in her books. And she came out with two more after that that are absolutely incredible. I love her work and uh, loved sitting down to visit with her. Thank you for listening to the Sewing Prosperity podcast. We hope that you have learned something new and that you are inspired to adopt regenerative practices in your community. Remember that by working together, we can create a sustainable and abundant future for ourselves and for future generations.